Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is run with the assistance of the UTS Business School and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. Well, how far would you be willing to go to get financial data on your super fund? A quick Google search, some clandestine cyber sleuthing or... Would you be willing to sign up to 20-odd super funds as a full-time member in the hopes of gaining access that way? Well, that's exactly what today's guest, Dr Tuolasi Sivapalan, a recent PhD graduate from the UTS Business School, did for his thesis. And if you're wondering where the fun in Superfund went, or if indeed it existed at all, today's episode may have the answer. Tuolasi's PhD examines whether industry super funds are tax efficient and is the first time this research has been conducted. It's the frontier of our understanding of what happens behind the funds. What is the relationship between super funds and the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA, the industry watchdog? And why does it take a mountain of application forms and suspicious calls to lift the lid on the $2.9 trillion industry's financial data? Dr. Sivapalan joins us for today's episode. So you've essentially started this one-man mission to determine how much tax Australian super funds really pay. Now, most people would have lost motivation with just the sheer volume of admin work that that would require to join 20 superannuation funds. So where and when did this idea come to you and what exactly inspired it? What happens is in any sort of PhD, you need to get data to do your study. And so the data that we required could not be found or bought from any database. We had to search and ask a lot of people from, you know, regulatory authorities such as the ATO and I, myself and and one of my supervisors actually had the nerve to ask the ATO for data and they politely declined. Funny enough, the APRA did have some really good data to begin with, but it didn't have the, the the data that we were looking for, but they did have data that helped us. So we reached out to APRA and said, we're looking for this financial information. Can you help us? The funny thing is, in APRA's guidance in regards to superannuation regulatory work, they actually don't mandate that superannuation funds provide them the financial statements that we were looking for. These are audit unabridged financial statements, which the funds are supposed to provide to members, uh, which you can get if uh, you are a member and you request that information as well. So APRA said that they cannot release that information due to a secrecy law that they had. So that meant I had to figure out another way to get these financial statements. And I was pretty upset with the whole thing uh, because uh, my funding was running out. And uh, so essentially I'd spend you know, endless nights just streaming through the CIS Act, uh, trying to figure out a loophole and figure out where I can get this information from. And so what I did do and found out was that if I do become a member of the trust, which is essentially all superannuation funds or industry funds are, are a trust, then the fund has to provide me the audited financial information if I request it for however many years that I do ask for. And so what I did is I paid up money from my own savings as a 
as a poor PhD student does. And uh, I, I became a member of uh, quite a few funds. Um, and so then I would ring up the super funds and I'd say, look, this is the thing in your in your CISAC that requires you to provide me with the financial statements. This is the, this is the line in your trustees that says that if I am a member, you have to provide me with it. And some funds look hesitant, uh, however, but did provide me with the financial information. Some funds didn't even know what the heck I was talking about. What's the process of joining 20-odd superannuation funds? And I can imagine that that would bring about some pretty suspicious questions, at least at least from a few of those funds, as to why you were so intent on joining. Was there a level of transparency where once, if at all, you were sort of honest with these funds as to why you wanted access to that unabridged financial data? Was there an understanding from the funds or or did they show signs of suspicion at all? Uh, So funny enough, the fund that I was with, Unisuper, were very uh, suspicious initially. And the good thing was I had the head of financial reporting at the time, an individual by the name of Peter Denovan, reach out to me. And since then, we've we've got this amazing relationship where Unisuper, and I said, this is why I want the financial information. And Peter said, I'm perfect. We we are more more than happy to give you the financial statements, and if you do have any questions, you know, reach out to us. So yes, of course, there were there were definitely questions raised by the people within the super funds. But when those questions were answered, a, a majority of funds were happy to play and provide us with the financial information. When, when they asked, we told them that we would you know, not allow their identity to get out. We made sure that none of that information could actually be you know, linked back to, to the fund itself. But then there were cer- certain funds, uh, a handful of funds did not provide the information uh, when required. We continually asked them for that information and they said no. And then it came to a point where we had enough, where we had 31 funds uh, information, which is enough for a study of this nature to take, take place. And how large a pool of data do you need in order for any sort of conclusion to be viable when you're studying an industry as large as superannuation in Australia? The number of superannuation funds in Australia at the time when I did start was quite large, but we focused our study uh, at the industry funds. And at the time, industry funds had about 42 uh, superannuation funds. I think that number is now steadily reducing because of some of the mergers that are taking place. Uh, The reason why we chose industry funds was it, it was a pooled superannuation trust and it was easier to actually work out um, their tax rather than some of the retail funds who also have a you know a profit orientation which changes the way in which their governance structures also work and it has an impact on the way in which they might actually structure the the fund itself there's a lot of products on products that we recognize by looking at some of the retail funds and how does taxation of superannuation in Australia actually work it appears as though it's quite unique yeah so the the Australian superannuation system is quite unique in itself and so Tax within the fund is quite unique to Australia, whereas uh, in the US where you've got the 401ks uh, and in the UK where you've got pension funds, the taxing takes place after the fact, well, on exit, whereas in in Australia's superannuation system, you've got a, a tax, tax, and then exemption situation where you tax on contribution, tax within earnings, and then exemption on withdrawal. So that in itself is a bit different from the rest of the world. Now, we all believe superannuation funds 
uh, have a media benchmark of, of 15%, we think that we're, you know, getting taxed at 15%. However, when we look at superannuation funds, yes, the 15% is applied to the contributions that we provide from the employers. But then what happens within the fund has been a mystery. It's been a black box. And so this was where my study really was focused on. And it was something that uh, came out of the Cooper review, essentially, and that there was a leakage happening within the within that taxing component, but no one was able to actually verify how much that leakage was. And that was a very difficult thing for the Productivity Commission as well. So more recently, the Productivity Commission also highlight the fact that tax is a huge expense. And to be honest, it is the largest expense uh, that a member faces uh, in their fund. So when you think about the compounding effect of, of that, understanding what that leakage is, is important. And so what we were able to show amongst the sample that we had uh, was that uh, on average within the three years that we studied was um, it was about 8%. And this is interesting because this is the first time we've been able to capture uh, an actual uh, a number or percentage of the magnitude of that of that leakage. It's a monumental task to do with a few people. But then again, I'm sure you've probably had this question cross your mind as well. Do you worry that there was a reason that this study was never conducted previously? And if it took you to obviously look into it and find this black box, as you describe it, why do you think this had never even been touched on before? That's an interesting question, Max. And I, I don't have, you know, one perfect reason. I think it's a confluence of many factors. I think one of the most interesting things is probably the disclosure regime when it comes to data in the superannuation space. And I think also from 92, when when Paul Keating actually put the the frameworks of of the current superannuation system on place, I think people, they built the tracks as the train was kind of running. It wasn't something that had just been like, okay, this this is a plan that we want. And so as they realized that there were problems along the way, they make fixes and there would be unintended consequences. But getting back to your main question, I think one of the possible reasons is the fact that it's just the fact that data was very hard to to get. I'm an enthusiastic individual, but at the same time, I I, I don't believe that the the Productivity Commission also tried to do the same thing. And and I'm not saying that they're slouches over there, but it's very difficult. They they mentioned that data is one of the hardest things that they could get their hands on. That's definitely the probable main situation. Look, don't get me wrong, APRA does have some good data, but the data to actually understand tax is is quite um, intricate. And one of the first things that you noticed was almost a complete lack of literature. You've obviously alluded to that already, but it was really across the entire sort of landscape of superannuation, tax, financial reporting, disclosure, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about disclosure and APRA in a few questions time, but transparency seems to be the bane of super funds in many ways, at least often in the way they're portrayed in the media. You've already said it was very difficult to gain access to the unabridged financial data. But if you weren't as motivated as you are, and if you didn't understand how to adequately navigate a lot of these different portals in order to find the black box, what sort of information is just readily available to your average member? I think it lies on a spectrum. And I think there are some very good funds that are very open and transparent, and they provide a lot of information. Uh, And then 
on the other side of the spectrum, there is also funds out there that obstruct the way in which data is presented or information is provided, or they just don't have the resources to be able to think about that amount of transparency because it is a cost, right? It is a cost on the membership. And so we have to take that into consideration when we look at some of the, the funds that, um, that aren't able to stack up with, with that transparency because, you know, just getting a return in itself is is a very difficult task, uh, and uh, and applying uh, the 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 members' money to uh, investments that are generating positive uh, returns is 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 a challenge in itself. Couple that with the regulatory frameworks that are there from a, a tax perspective, from an APRA SISAC perspective, and then you've got ASIC as well. So you're 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 working across three regulators, and some of these. Some of these funds just may not have the the appropriate resources uh, to be able to to deal with. And to be honest, and that's why one of one of the reasons why we see a lot of the corporate funds, you know, dwindle in the in the last ten to fifteen years, has been the case because the the regulatory cost is is quite high. Over the course of your research, you found significant discrepancies between what super funds reported to their members and what they were telling APRA. So in 2015, for example, you found certain large industry super funds who will go unnamed uh, underreported their total investments to APRA by up to $1.9 billion, whilst other super funds overreported their total assets or investments by up to $600 million. So how did you eventually find this out? Was it just simply a comparison between the data APRA had available to them and the data that you were able to find with a little bit of investigating? We did a reconciliation. We looked at the data that APRA had according to their SFS reporting, which is a great scheme. But then we looked at our financial information data to find out which data is accurate and which can we trust. And because the financial reports uh, are cited by an auditor and as an, and has accounting standards put on it, we essentially ask the question, how come there is um, an issue in, in regards to the reconciliation of this data? We weren't provided with a response uh, regarding that. We did ask. However, like, there's a lot of things going on at, at APRA. Uh, I can understand that um, they would have had a lot of things going on and I had my own sort of timelines, so I couldn't really wait to, to get Get a response. I still haven't got a response, to be honest. And it's something that should be highlighted, and it is something that uh, should be discussed as well. Look, at the same time, APRA do discuss the limitations of that data, and they highlight that as well. But it's something that should be on the forefront of of, of the regulators' minds. And does it make you at all question their ability to operate as a regulator if they're either unwilling or unable to? reply to your queries or at least engage you? That in itself is is difficult because they probably have a lot of, and at that time the Royal Commission was going on as well. So uh, we, I have to understand that uh, it is difficult for the regulator to operate. And there's also cost constraints uh, that APRA have. What happens there is, is, is something that is beyond my control. And I think they're doing a good enough job based on uh, the resources that they do have. And it is difficult. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, criticize. APRA, all I can do is ask questions. And how would such a disparity occur? How would the data be so vastly different? It could be timing. Maybe APRA 
receive data from their SFS at a certain time and, and the, the reported numbers uh, provided to the financials uh, are on the 30th of June. So essentially, there could be a timing thing, but it could be other things. So we, like, we don't know. So it's not something we can definitely put a hat on and say, this is exactly where it is there's a there's a multitude of reasons as to why that could be the case you know the the way in which uh, financial information from an accounting perspective is communicated versus what APRA are providing via their SRF uh, superannuation reporting framework now to some of the conclusions of your research what were your findings in a in a nutshell on the taxes Australian super funds pay was there evidence of tax avoidance or is all this just a result of really good accounting from large financial institutions? So we started off the first chapter to look at uh, whether or not superannuation funds were adopting aggressive tax practices, and this is back in the on the back of uh, the news articles that came out from the you know the Luxembourg leaks and the Panama Papers that indicated that superannuation funds were operating offshore financial centres, and that was our initial motivation to get an idea of oh, well are the funds actually behaving uh, in the same way some of the large multinationals have been behaving over the last you know ten years, and and there's been uh, an abundance of literature looking at the corporate space. But there hasn't been anything looking at any of the pension funds. I think also it was an interesting area to look at because this is uh, the superannuation funds have a lower tax rate than the corporates. And we thought to ourselves, well, this is actually quite an interesting environment to ask the question. Does the tax rate have an impact on the way in which people behave in regards to aggressive tax practices? What we do find is that there is no real conclusive evidence that um, uh, superannuation funds engage or employ in aggressive uh, activity. But what led on to our second chapter within my PhD, which looks at a range at which the super funds were paying taxes. And so there seemed to be a 2% difference between some of the funds uh, within my sample. And it begged the question then, are the funds effectively managing tax then? Like, are there some funds that are managing tax differently? This is based on the fact that you control for variations in, in returns. And we, once again, didn't find anything statistically significant, but however, there was a certain trend. So descriptively, uh, and that's purely because of the data we had, we only had uh, three years worth of data. And we found that uh, descriptively, there seems to be an indication that some of the larger funds were able to etch out um, a tax effectiveness. But some of the larger funds were definitely able to get an effectiveness factor there. And one of the things we realized was that these some of these funds were actually employing tax management strategies. And, and this comes out of a paper by Gordon McKenzie out of UNSW, who interviewed some CIOs back in 2014 when the uh, the CISAC was amended after the Cooper review, uh, where, where, where trustees had, had to actually look at um, the consequences or the taxation consequences of their investment strategies. Uh, and so that was an interview or, or sorry, a, a survey uh, paper, whereas we wanted to kind of empirically be able to see if there is something there. I think in time, we will definitely see something because I think there are some funds that are thinking about tax quite actively, uh, and there are certain funds that just don't have the ability or the, the resources to be able to actually 
focus their attention on the, you know, the multitude of things that, that the superannuation landscape have. Your paper recommends a new tax benchmark of 10.5% for superannuation to better align with reality or at least align itself more with obviously these tax burdens that can befall some of these funds. So how did you reach that figure? That came about because of the data that we had based on the information uh, provided in in those financial reports. So what we did was we essentially took a certain level of assumptions based on the average fund within our sample, uh, which consisted of, I think it was about 7% pension phase where you don't have to pay tax. And we took a certain portfolio that suggested, you know, 25% of Australian equities, 25% of international equities and, and the rest filled with infrastructure. If smaller funds are simply, as you said, just unable to take that burden effectively, is it just in everyone's best interest to move to a large fund? And I don't think we should make a decision, and I don't never think we should just ever make a decision on tax when it comes to our superannuation, because we should definitely think about the returns which funds are able to to provide from a long-term perspective, because superannuation is a long-term investment. However, it would be prudent uh, to consider uh, funds that um, have a good governance structure. And something that certain funds have actually started employing is the tax transparency reporting. And, and so I think it would be important to have a look at whether or not a fund is providing that information so that that way you know that they are thinking about it because they are reporting on it. That would be my sort of opinion. First things first, it's important to you know, consider the return. But then there are other aspects of the fund that we can essentially look at and say, okay, they provide this reporting, they're thinking about it. They provide us with this reporting, they're thinking about it. It makes your decision-making a little bit more easier because what, what it's told you is, hold on a moment, they're thinking about it, so they must be doing something about it or they're reporting on it. Well, although tax is not the be-all and end-all of superannuation, Tuolasi's research has revealed that first, the disparity in declared financial statements from funds to their industry watchdog and those uncovered by Tuolasi often have some unnerving differences. And secondly, in the endless juggling act of maximising returns for members while keeping the worst of taxes at bay, big firms are far more likely to prosper than their smaller counterparts. It's not the first time we've lifted the lid on super, and I can assure you, it certainly won't be the last. That's all for today's show. Thank you very much to our guest, Dr Tuilasi Sivapalan. Make sure to catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts, and of course, don't forget to tell your friends. I've been your host, Max Stillman. I'll see you again next week.